Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Eric Goldberg, who is an investor and an entrepreneur in gaming, and he has been in the industry for close to 35 years now. He runs an investment company called Crossover Technologies, and he's now a co-founder with Raf Koster in Playable Worlds. In this episode, we're gonna be talking about Eric's background, his knowledge of gaming, funding, but also like we're gonna talk about some of these billion dollar game companies, how they've been growing in the recent years, what has been changing there to actually allow these companies to come up. But before we go to the episode, here's a few words from our sponsors. Are you a mobile game developer who's looking to try something new on the ad creative side? My top pick would be influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific content from your games and Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Go to getigc.com to see some examples. That's getigc.com. This podcast is sponsored by Favro, a new tool for collaborative planning that more and more game studios are starting to use. It was created by game industry veterans to help studios doing frequent live drops of features and content to get development, marketing, and other teams in sync. Check it out. There's a free trial at favro.com. And if you use the promo code EliteGameDevFavro, you're going to get a 25% discount on your purchase. That's favro.com. At Pollen VC, we're committed to helping game developers improve their financial literacy. That's why we've launched CFO Resources, a new section of our website that hosts a free suite of calculators and financial planning tools to help you plan your business and grow faster. Our financial forecaster tool helps you project cash flows and visualize your ROAS and LTV based on metrics you provide. And if you're a hyper-casual developer, you need to check our hyper-casual velocity calculator. Head over to pollen.vc and click CFO resources to get started. And we're live. Hey, Eric, welcome to the show. Joaquin, thank you for having me. It's great. We're going to be talking about so many topics around gaming. Uh, I wanted to, to first off start off with asking you, like, how did you make your way into the game industry back in the day? Uh, well, uh, when I was uh, 12, my second cousin came to New York and said, there is a game company downtown that does play tests on Friday nights and you might want to look into it. I went down there and uh, I was hooked. I started working at, at age 13 because I was tall and they thought I was older than I than I actually was, they offered me a clerical job. And then um, after playtesting for several years, they offered me a job as a game designer before I turned 17. Everybody was happy. I got to design games. The president of the company had a designer working at slightly above the minimum wage. So I was cheap. You know, the, the best thing about the first, it was a military simulation game that I designed, is that it's out of print and my rookie mistakes cannot can, are not no longer available in general publication. Um, so that was, um, but uh, that's where I started. Uh, by the way, while 
I did start young. I like to joke that my colleague, Greg Kostikian, was offered a job by the same company at 16 years, four months. And I was offered the, jo the job as a designer at 16 years, nine months. So I was obviously a late developer between the two of us. Uh, and also Dave Perry, who is my, one of my peers from the, uh, the designers who started in the 1980s, sold his first game from his bedroom in Ireland when he was 15 years old. So I'm really late developed compared to Perry, you know, did some of the great early single player games and was president of Gaikai through to the sale to Sony. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a good start. Yeah, I, I started at 15 well here in finland <laughs> you need we need to start off early it doesn't make sense to wait why wait uh well Joachim, i don't want your audience to feel that they're washed up at age 21 because they haven't made the start so yeah. so yeah, i think true. there are people like chris crawford the dean of computer game designers did start until his late 20s, early 30s. And he did the Seminole Eastern Front. He did uh, Balance of Power. Uh, and he did a landmark work. Of course, he was a physics professor first because he was he was probably the first great PC game designer with his first work coming out in the 1970s. Mm, yeah. So by the way, if you're, you're, for, you're 45, maybe you shouldn't start a career in game design. But I think 20s and 30s are okay. Yep. Yeah, I guess it's like never too late to to get into gaming if you love it. No, I said I uh, I said I can't. I haven't studied the age cohorts in my in my non copious free time. I will definitely figure out who, who's the latest entrant into games. How old were they? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question. Anyway, sorry. Back to your back to your top your regular topics. Sure thing, man. Uh, there's there's a question I wanted to ask you before we get into kind of like talking about the industry nowadays, but like you're involved in a lot of companies and you've been doing a lot of funding of gaming companies how do you see that venture capital and its relationship with gaming has changed with mobile and with the big shifts that have, have been happening in the recent years compared to something like 10-15 years ago well so I've chronicled this um, with a number of conferences and in um, you know a number of talks. So there was a there was a brief explosion of games venture capital investing by the traditional California Sand Hill Road, you know the the, the Kleiner Perkins, the Benchmarks, etc. In around 2010 2012, but they were really only investing at the Series A, Series B. By the time you get to 2015, as you've heard me say, if you went down Sand Hill Road and offered a games investment or contracting leprosy, they'd have to think about it. It was just completely out of favor, and it was a category they didn't want to cover. Fast forward to 2017, and I go to the VentureBeat conference, and I say, there are 15, we're in a neutral period, there are 15 uh, venture firms that are willing to invest in games. And I got challenged on that, and I came up with a list of 17. As of two weeks ago, when when we did the venture beat the venture beat session, I observed that there were at least thirty in the Western world, and Ed Fries of One Up claims there are as many as eighty. I, I absolutely want his list. What we have right now is what we didn't have in 2010, 2012, because we only had Series A and maybe some minor, minor Series B. Now we have a whole cohort of seed investors. We have a we we have. We, we've always had angel investors, but they were friends and family. We have many people who are angel investors um, who are out of the industry, such as yourself. So mm -hmm. we get we get angel, we get seed, we have series A. The area that we do not yet have covered, and I'm hopeful that we will see in the next couple of years, is the series B and C. You can definitely get the later ones. I mean, the, you know, the Kotus and the uh, KKRs and the uh, you know will we'll invest in the you know in the hundred million range or the you know the many tens of millions. 
But what we need to see to complete a complete venture ecosystem is to see people stepping up for the Series Bs. And even in that category, we have some hope because the strategics, um, that is, strategics in the U.S. would be EA and Activision. In Europe would be the Ubisofts and the Ubisofts and the Sumos. And in Asia would be, let's say, the Ten Cents, the uh, you know the Square Enixes and the uh, and the Nexons are stepping up to do investments or making that part of their portfolio, both as LPs of the venture firms, but also doing direct investments. So once we have a complete gaming venture ecosystem, we will have something we have never seen before in the industry, which will mean that we can grow. And one of the most interesting developments that matters is not so much the the, the mobile one you described, but whether or not people are investing in studios or they are investing in, in, in things that are peripherals, whether it be spectating. By peripherals, I don't mean like, a, sorry, that was a bad choice of words. Uh, I meant peripheral industries such as esports, spectating, metric analysis services, and so on and so forth. But the games industry will have something we have never seen before, which is a capital system that will allow young entrepreneurial companies to succeed. It is, this generation of startups have an advantage that no previous generation of games uh, of game entrepreneurs have ever had. Do you like think about what could what would be the best thing for gaming financing to happen next? What what is sort of like the the dream case to actually like put push the forward the industry forward even more? Uh, okay, so two things. Let me be a little bit pragmatic rather than give the happy answer. So I mentioned the, the, the issue about filling in the Series B and Series C, C gap, where you have enough revenues, where you have revenues, but you need growth and expansion capital. We have to weather the bump that will come. You know, there, there are two right now. There are simply too many investors. When I was asked in 2011-2012, um, you know, why I was doing fewer game companies, I said, "Look, you have." a number of very good teams. Uh, you have a large number of them, but you had, do not have enough exits for them. The market will not absorb the, the exits. And I'm not smart enough to figure out who's going to be lucky enough or who's going to be good enough to be able to get through. Fast forward to 2021. One huge advantage is we have seen IPOs at a level we've never seen before. We had not seen more than three or four IPOs in a game company in a 12-month period. We've now seen over 10, including several of the Asian IPOs. So there are a lot more exits. There's also been an artificial bump in game playing, which has caused overinvestment. And the reason is the pandemic. With people being more at home, the uptake of gameplay went up by some, I forget, there's various numbers you can see, but it's something like 25%. That will drop inevitably when people are not, now that people are able to go outdoors in, in the West. I, I'm sorry, I do not know how things are in Finland. You know. Yeah, we're getting there as well, like going more into, you know, like you're going to take holidays. Versus like stay at home and play video games. So Correct. So we're going to yeah. see, you know, there, there's a drop coming in 2021, 2022. Um, so too many projects were funded. By the way, when I say too many projects, even with the drop-off, it is more than was funded in 2020. In other words, there. let's say, let's say that gaming tripled. It hasn't, but let's say that it did. And you fund projects that assume that it increased by five times. It's just too many. That's what we've had. It's not that games haven't grown and will continue to grow. It's that it, you know, games are the you know I observed in the 1990s that games were going to be the dominant art form because they're interactive of the 2000s. 
I did not give enough credit to things like um, interactive storytelling. Actually, in terms of shopping being interactive, I didn't do. But games are still the one that you can just list a whole set of things that interactivity has made something that people spend more of their, more their time doing. Anyway, but games are still dominant. You look at you know the app store, games are 75% of, app, of consumer app revenues and so on and so forth. So obviously it leads everything else. So we will see this correction. Um, in one sense, when the market corrects because there are too many projects and because there are too many VCs, the good news is that we will see who the best VCs are. Uh, uh, you know, for instance, when I asked this question last week, Bitcraft, which was one of the which is one of the older ones of the new crop, said we've only been around for four. You know, Jens Hilger said we've only been around for four or five years. So therefore, we haven't even gone through a full venture capital cycle, which is seven to ten years. So we don't see results. Yes, Bitcraft is clearly one of the leaders. They not only have they done a lot of investments, but they've had they've had a number that have jumped in valuation, seem likely to do exits like Manticore, like Ben, and obviously I let's say I'm hoping to have an announcement about Playable Worlds, which is the company that I co-founded with Raf Coster, the Sandbox MMO play, do an announcement. But they have about five or six that have had that have achieved you know substantial increases in valuations. And then, you know, you'll see others, you know, Galaxy, which is another investor in us, has had a number of incre- have had a number of increases, though oddly their blockchain investments have done even better than their games investments. So there'll be a tension with that firm because they've done so spectacularly well on several of their black blockchain investments that games are comparatively stodgy. Yeah. Given that they've done 15 game investments, they're pretty serious about the field. Then to choose the third of them, Makers Fund, which is run by Jay Chi and Michael Chung, which is a very sharp firm, is going to see its first crop. They're like Bitcraft. They go back about four years. But that's almost the oldest in, the, in this cohort. Yeah. So we need to see... We need to see the venture firms winnow out so you know who the good ones are. There are some ones I didn't mention because I just chose the ones who were the three most prolific investors because I didn't want to choose favorites. But there will be other great investors that come out of the group below that and who will be spectacular performers. And then some will fall away because they just haven't been able to perform. Mm -hmm. Uh, The two other things that I think really matter is the differentiation Again, I assembled the uh, venture group for this year's Venture Beat based on people who had operating experience on the non-business side. So Freeze was the founding GM and then VP of Microsoft Games, launched the Xbox. Andrew Shepard yeah. was head of product for Kabam. Jens Hilgers was the entrepreneur and entrepreneur and founder of ES, which was by some measures the biggest independent esports game. Getting operators, which we really haven't had as venture capitalists, then we have just the people who are experienced at doing it. Yeah. On the business side, you have David Gardner of LVP. Exactly. You have people like Gregory Milken, who've invested in games now for six for six years, even though he wasn't in the business. So we're getting around a set of people who come from different experiences and invest in different categories. Mm, yeah, that happened 10 years ago when, when LVP started. Then it was initial capital in the, the the first like mobile wave what do you think like the the like you mentioned makers fund and and bitcraft like you're absolutely correct lvp and initial are were the small group who actually do have a full cycle and i should have given credit to them so thanks for bringing that up and lvp had the success of supercell but what's been interesting is it's almost impossible to have a second supercell you'd have a company Mm -hmm. that you invest in at the seed level and ends up being worth 10 billion dollars yeah but what's been interesting is to watch what's been important is to find their smaller successes the ones that are quote only 100 million or 200 million and that lvp is delivering those it tells you that they're going to be around for a long time yeah i think like we need to now 
double click on this topic of $10 billion companies. Like there's not that many in the studio landscape. So you need to go and look at companies like Epic, like AppLovin, Roblox that are in those tens of billions. Like just focusing on on those companies. Why do you think like, I believe there's more studio investments happening? Uh, what is the sort of like the difference there for these gaming specialists to look at the platforms versus the, the, the studio plays? Uh, there's something even more basic before I get into the that. In venture or in any financial market, you want to scarce their commodity. So there are, you know, there are tons of studios. It's amazingly, it's not hard to find people who really want to make games. Apparently there are, there are you know, there, there are probably only several hundred million of them out of the population of 7 billion. But the point is there's huge competition with studios. The advantage that uh, Epic is in is if you look at their core business, which is a rendering engine, there are sev- there's only one other major competitor in the West in Unity. There are several other competitors, but it's basically a duopoly. If you look at if you look at AppLovin, there are not there simply are not you know the ad network business is not sexy, but it sure as hell makes money. It sure as hell makes money. I'm sorry. And the third one you meant? What was the third one you mentioned? Ro- the Roblox. Roblox. Okay. Well, Roblox. Uh, Roblox. I've described as uh, everyone likes to say UGC, and it's a great market. UGC is hard. Roblox started in 2006. They did not hit get the flywheel going in, until 2016. I described them as a 10-year overnight sensation. It is a, incredibly important what Dave Pazuki did. They And they also had Altos backing them at critical points. They nearly went under a couple of times, but they kept at it until they cracked the code on UGC. It is highly unusual for anyone to develop a big UGC business short of owning an ecosystem, which would apply in China, but in the West where you don't get to own your own ecosystem. Uh, probably the only one I can think of that has done something at scale in UGC in in fewer than eight, seven, eight years is uh, IMVU, uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 the virtual world play, which has now moved into blockchain. But they were able to do it within five years, which is pretty, pretty darn impressive. And I guess you could argue second life, but uh, mm. you could certainly argue second life. But both of those have limits to growth that Roblox hasn't. I mean, Second Life's issue is it is so complex to get into it that you that basically there's a there's an issue and there's also the issue there's some other issues with that. IMView has done very well, but they seem to have hit a plateau. Uh, anyway, back to your question. Yeah. The reason why they yeah. do better is each of those companies, AppLovin, Epic, Roblox, have staked out a territory with relatively few competitors and become a dominant player. Yeah. Yeah, and and all of them sort of like were in in play for for a decade and the world sort of like caught up with the vision that they were going after especially with roblox yeah well roblox is uh, again normally when i started in online in online games in the early 1980s and you know i was the designer of the first online game to draw one million players which was uh, mad maze um, I looked at online and said, this is going to change the way we work, live, and play. And if you were generous, I was only seven years too early. And if you were more pragmatic, I was 15 years too early. In the venture field, that's indistinguishable from wrong because the because the cost of capital and so on. And the point is, if you're too early, someone else hits it the right way. Roblox is an extraordinary story because they were too early and they stuck with it. And luckily for that, and they were smart enough to have chosen a field where it's hard to develop UGC. It will be, Roblox is probably the hardest, one of the hardest companies in games to compete with because UGC is hard. They've got the network effects. 
They've got things beautifully tuned. Their big Roblox has one significant limit to growth, which is that they are age banded. You know, in other words, they lose they lose people once they get into their into their teens. It'll be very interesting to see how they deal with that. But by God, do they own their market? Thinking about Epic a bit here, like the the whole debacle that they have with the platforms, uh, Apple and Google. How much is this is the situation that that Tim Sweeney is saying? Let's change the industry for the better. Or more or less, like, let's carve out the position in the market for the Epic Store and grow Epic that way. Like, wh- where do those motivations come from? What do you think? Tim Sweeney is um, a, is a junior version, a junior size version of Elon Musk. He's run. He's trying to do three different uh, three different businesses. He's got the rendering engine business. He's got um, he's got the Epic Store, and he's got this small little game called Fortnite that you may have heard of, um, which is doing well. These are these are three completely different businesses, and what he is doing is he is seeking to succeed on all three of them. There's a there's a standard line in military history that you don't want to fight two front wars. With the case study obviously being Adolf Hitler's Germany, which lost because they fought a two-front war. One advantage about being in business is that you can fight a two-front war. If Sweeney does well with two of them, he will be one of the great business leaders of his time. Uh, yes, Sweeney wants to make a lot of money. Yes, he's and so on. But I believe like Musk and some of the other people, he generally wants to change things. He wants to change the games field. He feels that the platforms you know, basically get dominance for essentially being there at the right place and they don't do much to improve games. And we should want Sweeney's initiative to succeed. And this is a terrible thing to say. We don't care if Epic succeeds. We just care that he dislodges the the uh, dominant position that Google and Apple have had to be able to charge us what is too much. Mm. And this field owes a great debt because one of the reasons why Microsoft dropped their fees down to 12%, one of the reasons why, I mean, Apple's concession that they'll drop the percentages down for companies that have under 1 million of revenues is less impressive than it sounds because if you look at the split of revenues, those companies combined, every single one of the million of them are less than four, 5% of the annual revenues that, that Apple gets. So they're graciously giving up the fees on under 5% of the revenues and keeping yeah. it high on the other 95. And Sweeney is going after that. Um, then on the Epic Store, um, everyone has wanted to go after Steam. Uh, by the way, one thing that's great about Valve is that they start as a game company. So at least unlike Apple and Google, they care about that. But they've yeah. been a near monopoly provider for 15 years. They get lazy. It's just when it's easy to make money, you don't have to work that hard at it. You don't do that well. The Epic Store has lots of problems. The the interface is an issue. They don't have as good a selection. But uh, Sweeney is again doing a service to the industry because he is funding the Epic Store. He is making the mistakes because as you know, Epic has a huge cadre of very smart people, but they didn't have e-tailing experience. And what they're willing to do is for several to do things for several years. In some ways, he's a mini Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos is prepared to fail for four to eight years because, but at the end of eight years, he's going to succeed big time. Look at what he did with Amazon Web Services, and it's why, despite the recent spate of extraordinarily negative reports on Amazon Games, you cannot count on Amazon Games because they operate on a different investment and competitive timescale. So that's another area where Epic is Epic is going after something and making a long-term investment. And Sweeney is clearly willing to raise capital and dilute his ownership interests to support it. 
On the third business, the rendering engine, that's you know, the good thing for those of you who care about working with Unreal is that the entire management of that company has grown up with Unreal. They care about it. Do not worry that they will abandon it while they do a couple of other ones because in their DNA, it's all about Unreal. Whether or not he can pull this off, he clearly will be doing this for two or three years. I think that Sweeney deserves to win and at least one of the two new markets, the store and the um, and the uh, and the Fortnite business. Um, but I don't think it matters for the overall. It is great for the overall health of the field because he will accelerate better splits for developers. He will accelerate. He will accelerate certain types of gameplay. Um, and I don't think he's going to win on all three just because you almost can't. I mean, Jack Dorsey has done it with Twitter and Square. Musk obviously has a prospect of doing it with several things. I don't know how you win at space travel. Maybe he lands the first man on Mars. But uh, Sweeney is in some ways the ultimate entrepreneur in the games field. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And if, if this whole thing goes through, it basically opens up a new business opportunity for everybody. If, if mobile apps basically become an open web. I think you can make it possible that we get there. But something, but that's an even more ambitious project because at the moment, we still have, you know, we still have the walled gardens that we've always had going back to America online in the U.S., going back to, you know, you know Apple wants the walled garden model, um, you know, Google a little bit less so, but only because, you know, Apple's business is a hardware business, core business is a hardware business, Google's business is an ad business. So they, you know, Google is more relaxed because they can still make their money with a less closed garden. That will, I believe, will only be solved by government uh, intervention which fortunately is in the process of happening. I mean, the EU is leading, is leading the Western world in terms of regulation and so on and so, and so, on and so forth, both on the internet and on games. Uh, and we will. I predicted that it would start affecting things in the U.S., which really has an unregulated games business in, two, in early 2021 because we don't do things until a presidential election was over. I have to revise that prediction to 2022 because I neglected to account for, A, a pandemic, and be the um, the unusual way that Donald Trump governed. I think would be the polite way of put, polite way of putting it. But we are seeing it happen. It's being modeled. You know, loot box, we're seeing some loot box regulation. It's not as stringent. But we are also seeing, more importantly, the EU started by going after the Facebooks, the Apples, and so on and so forth. We are now seeing it in the American Congress as one of the few issues that Republicans and Democrats can get on board with. So we will see an attempt to loosen the wall gardens with, you know, we're seeing legislation being proposed. And that means there's the entire Western world. Asia handles it differently. The PRC and Korea have always felt that regulating games has been something they've been doing since 2005. But unless, is that part of this discussion? Because that's yeah. a really, do you want to move on or do you want me to cover the Asian, what the Asians do? Now, tell me like your thoughts there, because that's a, that's definitely something that okay. a lot is happening there. So as early as 2004, 2005, Korea was the world leader in regulating games, just as if it were television or another industry. So, uh, and China would usually copy them within one or two years. They're fairly similar. So Korea passed uh, Korea passed anti-fatigue laws, which meant that you could not reward people for playing more than a certain number of hours a week. So in other words, you couldn't make a game that rewarded someone for playing 50 hours a week. In other words, the, the buffs and the points and the level increases and the items you could get simply had to shut off after you played the 20th or 30th hour. And then they moved on to saying that the hour limits were lower for children than for adults. 
Uh, Korea also uh, has set up not one but two agencies that regulate games at the government level. And in one of the more interesting things, usually it is the party that is out of power in terms of owning the Blue House that actually owns the more, that actually has leadership of the more powerful of the two game agencies. I'm not quite sure why this happens, but it's literally if you're out of power, you get to control the game, the better game agency. And if you're in power, you get the one that's the lesser game agency. China, of course, emulated the Korean rules. You can usually see it happen. Some variation of laws passed in Korea within a year or two. That's changed because we are now seeing China decide that all of the major companies, uh, all the major digital companies, are part of the, are are influenced and perhaps have to reflect the will of the state. And that means that they forked into a different direction. I mean, when Jack Ma can disappear for three and a half months. Everyone took that as a sign that Premier Xi was saying, you may be a, a, a decibillionaire, but I'm sorry, I I run the country and the PRC you know, and the Communist Party runs the country. Thank you. That's a different board. Uh, Japan actually does its own regulation. I won't get into that. I won't get into that. They've been doing it for a while. Let's just say they do things that are similar but different. And it's just that Korea, Korea is probably the innovator of gaming regulations. Now the EU and I forget the names of the various agencies are just leading the Western world and the U.S. will follow them. Uh, then, like we, we already touched base a bit on app loving, but this whole performance marketing sort of behemoth that they built with combination of a game studio that really can you know push push their games out phenomenally uh, with better distribution like what are your thoughts there on Applovin well Applovin is both impressive and frightening because they have an unfair competitor to the extent that games are a commodity and you know I don't care how brilliant you you think your game is if you're doing a maps 3 game you can't really differentiate if you're doing a slots game you can't really differentiate Uh, I've observed going back 10, 11 years that in game ad networks, the studios almost never win because the ad networks operate at scale. In other words, they win by being a lot of customers. But the thing that the ad networks have always wanted, they have unfair advantage. They know what their customers look like. The studios can't possibly match Applovin's reach of several hundreds of millions of people. So Applovin has done something that actually I suspect will attract regulatory attention down the road because they're able to buy studios that do well understood games. If you're doing the umpteenth your house build your your fashion game or the umpteenth house building game that's derivative of Covet or or The Sims, Applovin can make sure that it gets a better chance to succeed, that it reaches a wider audience. They can essentially look at information from people who use their network who they do not own the studios and use it to get their studios to perform better. As a business proposition, Apple Oven is extraordinary. It may deserve their they of all the one, game companies that have gone public, they may actually deserve their valuation. They don't have a monopoly, but they sure as hell have an olig- not an oligopoly. I'm trying to remember the, which word is correct, but they effectively own you know they own the distribution, they own the production, and they also own the adver- you know the advertising business, which obviously is related to the distribution. So Applevin is a formidable competitor if you treat games as a business rather than as a creative art. In fact, the what, the area where Applevin's advantage goes away is if you do a truly innovative game that doesn't fit into a community category. They'll still learn, learn how to do that. It won't be that they don't have an advantage on that innovative game. It'll just be they have to teach their algorithms to recognize a game that they don't have, that they haven't seen before. So they'll be able to catch up faster than almost anybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that model 
it's sort of like what Swedish companies like Steelfront and Embracer are doing. But they that's a roll-up. So that's a classic model we've seen. Let's take a lot of small and medium-sized companies and build it into under one umbrella and essentially create size and market. Yes, there are synergies, but they are nothing, and they are not to be sneezed at. They are good synergies. They are nothing like the app level advantage. I mean, uh, still front may get advantages because they'll do centralized services because I know that they were doing a bunch of online gameplays, like they picked up Imperial Online. I'm sorry, Joaquin, it's been hard to keep track. I joked that uh, people are worried because Embracer, neither Embracer nor Stillfront have announced an acquisition in the hour since the, the conference started last week. <laughs> So they could get the advantage of central centralized services, yeah. but yeah. I am not exaggerating when I say that AppLovin's advantage from its synergies, because it is integrated end-to-end from distribution through the game, is a possibly 10 to 15x what Stillfront or Embracer have. Stillfront and Embracer will realize their value in the public market. They're doing a very different play. This is a standard playbook that works from industries from construction materials to food processing and so on and so forth. And it is not that they don't have impressive companies. I mean, um, Julian Gollops and David Kay's company that Embracer bought, you know, they, this is the modern XCOM game. The modern XCOM game, that's a very high quality product. It's not that they don't have it, but they just don't have the business advantage that's, yeah. that AppLovin has. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, I get it. Uh, thinking about one of the big things in the future, uh, which is sort of like could be the next platform is or it could be VR. Like, do you think it's going to change since the numbers look a bit more promising now than they used to? Was it the is it just the pandemic? Like, what do you think? Well, on VR, uh, so let's uh, let's deconstruct. I'm going to do VR and AR. I made myself somewhat unpopular during the 2016 2017 wave by saying this is not going to work. Uh, and the reason is that if you think about it, strapping something over your on your face and and over your eyes is something that only that only geeky smart guys who have limited social skills like me and possibly like you could yeah. think is cool. Uh, Aaron Griffiths, who is the marvelous business writer who usually uses erudite terminology, did a piece in Fortune magazine in 2017 that said VR is icky, and she pointed out that when you and I wake up in the morning, we comb our hair, we splash water on our face. We shave. Uh, you did a better job of grooming this morning than I did in shaving. And we're done in about five, 10 minutes. When a woman gets up in the morning, she has to put on her war paint. She has to spend 15 to 30 minutes generally if you know, generally doing it. The moment she puts on a VR headset, she's ruined all that work. So mm. the VR forum function actually limits its broad appeal. The other thing to look at, I mean, but in general, it is not in a form factor that works. And I don't care what you do. The idea of strapping on your face is something that is not, it works for people. It's a good entertainment. What you need to be checking is that what, what I call the sock drawer test. You get your VR rig, you get your Oculus, or you get your, your, your HTC at Christmas. Is it in the sock drawer by the end of January? I knew what the numbers were in 2016, 2017. Uh, the numbers now are better than they were then, but they are not as good as people do it. And in fairness to the developers, because, of course, it's a test of is the software out there. One thing about VR is not only are we having to create an entirely new vocabulary, all the vocabulary we do for games is, is wrong. For example, in a dungeon crawl game, we know that playing it on a PC, you should spend you know X number of minutes going through a corridor. In VR, 
people will spend three times that amount of time going through the corridor because they just want to be able to do the journey. We just have to retrain our, what we've learned over 20, 30 years to be able to do it. And uh, Charles Hudson, who is a priest cursor who comes out of the games industry, he actually says for VR and other emerging technologies, I actually want to fund companies that are not, that are headed, that are doing games that are not headed by people who are in the games industry because they don't have to unlearn what the games industry knows, which is why I am more optimistic about AR. There was a great study in 2008 or so, which unfortunately is not available on the web, by Nokia Research, which showed that people using an AR walking down the street where they were seeing artificial images on one hand and actually seeing the street had more trouble navigating the street than someone who had drunk two bottles of vodka because it, it completely set them off that they, as the AR images get better and better, when they don't look like something out of um, Pokemon Go, when they actually look photorealistic, uh, people actually get fooled and they get thrown off it. But the good thing about AR is the use case does not stop you from going about your normal business. I mean, I bring up this example of the, it actually fools the senses, is one of the reasons why it's so powerful. We haven't used, figured out how to use it, pro- use it or deploy it properly. I mean, to quote Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility, and we haven't figured out what to do with the great power of AR. On the other hand, I will point out that I think we may be going after the wrong type of AR solutions. What is the most popular AR application in the entire world? Games or anything else? Do you know? Good question. I think it's some kind of what you can mount on a desk or something. Um, Actually, it isn't. It's Google Maps. Hmm. Yeah. Google Maps is built around the way that people transact with the world. In other words, it supports driving, it supports walking, it supports things we're already doing. Pokemon Go, for all its success, has people, you know, it still has people doing things that they normally that they normally do. But I think if we think more about what patterns for AR, what what builds on the patterns we have that we already do, like driving and so on, or what types of gameplay does it build on that then AR adds as a new dimension to makes it makes an experience you can't have otherwise. I, by the way, if I knew all the answers to that, I would be busy doing that AR, that, that AR game or AR entertainment. But I think that's the way we have to think about it. So I think VR, VR will eventually hit. But by eventually, I'm talking about, I don't think VR is going to be a mass medium until, until 2030. Yeah. Yeah. It may be incredibly, it may be very popular, but AR has a chance to be a mass medium. I mean, it is with Google Maps, but as a mass game me- medium within, within, you know, sooner than that. Yeah. Tell me, Eric, like so you, you're working with a lot, of, a lot of companies, like what is hard about your job nowadays? Um, well, I think it's better to ask what isn't hard. So someone observed about me that um, I have an ability to do things that require being done the hard way. And I am drawn to things that require being done the hard way. But just because I like it and I'm good at it doesn't mean I shouldn't try to do things the easy way. So I like to take on challenges. I mean, people said for 35 years, you've been going on the cutting edge. How cool. And I said, cutting edge, sharp objects. I bleed a lot. I mean, you know, I have probably made more mistakes because I've been a first timer than any five random people out of your audience. It's been useful, but it's been painful. So hard. I'm now in my fourth startup. Playable Worlds, which I co-founded. Uh, by the way, just to be clear, Raf Koster had started on the design of the game and the architecture in early 2018. We didn't form the company until September, uh, September, October, November of 2018. 
doing a startup is hard. What I like to say when I was doing my third startup was we are in the smoke and mirrors business. Uh, and after two years, when the smoke clears, we have to hope that there's something there aside from mirrors. You are creating something from nothing. That's hard. You know, with Playable Worlds, we're trying to create an MMO, a sandbox MMO that is a modern sandbox MMO that is based on cloud native technology and so on that unleashes the power of the cloud. We spent the first year developing proprietary technologies to unleash the cloud. By the way, the proprietary technologies are impressive. I want to give credit to the engineering staff, but it, it, what they're just doing is allowing us to do things like get use the power of cloud compute. When you use the old client, the client model that's dominant in the field, even the most powerful rig, you know, gaming rig that someone has is nothing compared to AWS's or Azure's ability to summon a thousand, the power of a thousand desktop computers, you know, not laptops at one time and be able to deploy them. So we're able to do ProcGen from, you know, we're able to do ProcGen in a much greater scale than anything else. Getting that to work, to work was hard because, as I said at the beginning of that year, we're trying to do five different things. If we're lucky, three, one of them will blow up. If we're unlucky, three of them will blow up. In the end, two blew up. But anyway, uh, I'm working with Hero Live, which is which is doing a higher level of you know, virtual venues. In other words, you know, it is a next migration beyond watch parties. What's hard is for people to get, for for example, for people to understand what the why it's so much better. You have to get them to use them, and of course, it only works once you get the network effect. They're finally starting to get it, but it took them three, four years to to get the technology working and get the use cases right and get the critical mass above a hundred thousand. Now the numbers are we're showing five percent growth week on week. But Ned Lerner is amazing. He kept running out of money. By the way, he said, by the way, Eric, I'm still planning on running out of money, but but at least he's planning on doing it at a larger scale. That's hard. Another thing that's hard is a lot of people come to me because they know that whether or not you think I have brilliant insights, and maybe on a good day like August 11th, I'll have one of those. I can do pattern recognition and my repertoire of spectacular mistakes that I and my peer group have made that you want to avoid. So people come to me, and what's hard is telling people, okay, it's an interesting idea. 20 years ago, when I first heard it, I thought it was a good idea. Here's how it failed. It's hard to tell people that their idea actually isn't as good or at least has obstacles. And by the way, with each and every one, I hope that even though I quote, know, unquote, why it will fail, I hope that this is the time I'm wrong and they figured out the twist that solves the problem that the five or 10 corpses in the uh, startup graveyard have done. And it's really exciting when I, one of the things I get joy out of is when someone comes to me and can say, they don't even have to say, I told you so. They say, I made a success where nobody else has. To give you an example, the first time this happened was when I was introduced to Will Wright. And, and Chris Crawford said, this guy is really interesting. I think you're going to enjoy him. I said, God, he's great. You know, we would have, and we ended up visiting for years. But I did tell Chris, I hate to tell, I didn't, I didn't have the heart to tell Will that, that city building games just don't work. Uh, Will forgave me for that. I should stay stayed in touch. And actually, when I had actually invited me to tell him why Sim Earth would work, where I was right. But the point was, I had great joy in Will proving me wrong because there had been several failures of city building games. We, I said it's something that only architects and city planners could do. I've looked forward to the entrepreneurs who I told this is why it's not going to work proving me wrong. And I look forward to seeing them in 2022, 2023, 2024, because that's what's exciting about being in the field. So yeah. almost everything that I do or I touch is hard. 
I've made life easier as I've gotten older because I get to tell people what I get to analyze things and tell people what my experience brings. And they have to do the hard work of building the company. And I decided I didn't want them to have all the hard work for themselves. I, I was very, uh, and that's why I jumped to doing the startup game for the fourth time with Ralph Koster. Yeah, those are really hard, hard things to pull off. Yeah. One question before we go to the to the final questions that I always ask. You've been in the industry for over 30 years. So why are you still in gaming? And like why haven't you left? Like you know a reason. Well, maybe it's because I don't know better. No. Um <laughs> anyway. Um, so in effect, I haven't left, but I've diversified. So for the for most of the last 18 years whether I was called an advisor or a board member, uh, or I was functioning consultant, and I worked with over 50 companies. At one point, I was working with seven companies at a time. There were two times where I was working with six companies, none of which was a studio. And while I did almost everything that was consumer-facing technology, there were a couple of exceptions. I mean, for example, Compound Eye is a computer vision company. It's very much an enterprise solution. They're going to do very well because they've solved how to do things without LiDAR. But that's the exception. But for instance, I did a lot of work in ed tech and so on and so forth. Look, I was very lucky. We go back to when I started as a teenager. Games were only a global industry of under $200 million. It is now a global industry of $170 billion. I joined an industry that was that was growing, that was growing spectacularly. I was very fortunate that I chose a career. I had the great good luck. I mean, look, nobody says, I'm not going to say to you, Joaquin, I could have been, you know, I could have been an actuary, but I had to, you know, but I had to do games to get milk for the kids. That's not why you do it. You do it because you enjoy your know, games are games are fun. Games are great. You end up working with a lot of really interesting people. When I was married for the second time in 2007, I had a table and a half of basically GDC speakers and mm-hmm. game players. And these are my best friends because they are interesting, because they exchange ideas, because they are always trying to learn things. They are broadly read. They will talk to me. They will talk to me about the economic development of the Mediterranean. One of them will insist that I have to uh, do the entire overture of Bernstein and I have to see Candide and so on and so forth. And they'll also talk about games. So the field's expanded. It's something that I have renewed enthusiasm for. I'm a late in life parent. To have my daughter play, to have my daughter want to play games. I mean, she sat down to play my Tales of the Arabian Nights game, which was the seminal, you know, replayable adventure game, replayable paragraph system game that I first did in 1985. And I thought she was playing it just with her father, you know, because it's a daddy daughter game. But then I came home one day and she was playing it with a friend. And then I came home another day and she was playing with another friend. That's wonderful. So I get to share it with the next generation. But the other thing about games is there's always something new to be done. You ask me about AR, you ask me about VR, there's you ask me about blockchain, you ask me, I mean, there's so they're just fresh challenges every time. Games mm-hmm. are mutable, games are expanding. I mean, it's not, the reason why I stay in games is I don't stay in the games I grew up in. It changes. Now I do revisit. To be fair, I have made sure that Tales of Arabian Nights is in, in its uh, third edition, and it's a better edition. It's revised to be more modern. I've made sure that the Paranoia game I did with Greg Kostikian is in publication. We do new and inventive things, and we're doing our fourth try to have it optioned as a movie and TV property. It, you know, It'll probably turn into a romantic comedy or some way that Hollywood mangles it, but that's my posterity. But why I'm in games is why, you know, why are you in games? You started in mobile games. You're, mm-hmm. you, you're now investing in other games. 
look at what you do. I don't know your yeah. portfolio, but you're not just investing in let's do the next clash of clans. You're investing in your new and different games because you want to yeah. see what the next what's over the horizon. Is yeah. that fair yeah. to say about you? Yeah, I, I think you nail it there with the diversification angle. That that's that's one way to sort of like, you know, build out being involved in a lot of things with a way of having that pattern recognition and putting that to work. Really? Oh. I'll give you one thing. So with Playable Worlds, one objective I've had, for those of your audience who's not familiar, uh, Richard Bartle, who did the very first online game, Mud, came up with the Bartle archetypes. He said there are there are killers, there are achievers, there are socializers, uh, there are explorers. And I've wanted to see a game that could work for all four groups. Generally, what happens is combat is one of the best revenue generators. So games tend to focus on being for killers. That's one of the things that you have to have to do. And for example, Raf and I argue that uh, what World of Warcraft is, I say it's a game for killers. He says it's a game for achievers. Actually, so I asked Richard, who said, no, it's a game for socializers who think they're achievers, which I thought was the best was the best answer. <laughs> but to do to do a game, to do a sandbox MMO where killers can find other killers, but have reason to to work with achievers, who have reason to work with socializers, they touch upon each other, but they each have their different play experiences. That is a challenge that was laid down. The gauntlet was laid down. Not that Richard thinks of it that way. When he did his archetypes, so to do a game that could be not a game for every everybody but a game for most people and to do it as to do it in the context of a sandbox MMO is incredibly attractive that is a really hard challenge and if we come close to a solution it will be a great reward on now 35 years in online games yeah that is a good goal hey final questions for you eric what is your favorite book and why okay um well, there is no favorite. That's, that's like favorite music or a favorite song or favorite or favorite movie. I'll try and give you an answer uh, by giving you multiple books. I could say Richard Rhodes' The Making of the Atomic Bomb, which the first half is about the golden age of physics, the period that Niels Bohr, Einstein, and uh, actually he makes Leo Zylard, who's a little less known as the sort of the, the centerpiece. But they all, in the first half of the century, are developed more physics theory than almost any, anyone since the golden age of Newton. And then the second half is about how a pacifist like Robert Oppenheimer, who is one of the leaders of developing the American bomb, and a Pacific na uh, nation like Britain could go from that position to think it was right and proper to firebomb Dresden and to drop the bomb on Japan. So that's one thing. I can go to Lord of the Rings. It's a seminal book. Um, I, I had to have the advantage of doing, of having done the first, having been a developer, not the designer, of the first uh, licensed Lord of the Rings game that the estate allowed. So I have that thing, you know, for a nine-year period, I would read the trilogy from when I was 13 to 21, once a year. And then I got to reacquaint, I love the movies, and I got to reacquaint myself with it when my daughter, when my older daughter got into it. So I got to read it with her and so on and so forth. I could name, to choose a book nobody's ever heard of for uh, adventure fiction, Alastair McLean's The Golden Rendezvous, which is, a, you know, which is a man's, which is sort of a great adventure novel and thriller, which I think is nearly perfect. It was written in the early 1960s. It's just, you know, McLean was not a great writer, but he, ex but he could really put together plots. And they were all about, you know, they were all about manly men doing things in impossible situations. This is one about uh, a nuclear device has been put on a ship and the guy has got to figure out how to deal with what were effectively terrorists. It's just, it's just a beautiful novel. Of course, I read it in my teens and it sticks with me. I could give you other answers, but to say there's a favorite book, um, I can't do it. 
<laughs> I know. Uh, hey, do you have a story that has shaped you and how you approach your work today? Um, as, what type of story? You mean a fiction story or a story of how I go about my, uh, what I do? Can I don't yeah, what, something that happened to you uh, that sort of shaped you in how you approach your work? There's several. All right, I'll give I'll give an example. So when I was 20, uh, going you know since I, I at that point I designed several games, had won my first best of the year award for uh, Dragon Quest. I decided to design uh, a game on a subject matter for which I didn't have sympathy. So I chose gothic romances. I read 10 to 15 of them in about a week to 10 days, and my brain turned to industrial sludge. Near to in industrial sludge. Um, and I read you know, Bodice Rippers. I read Formula Harlequin novels. And then I went and designed a role-playing game, you know, very much like Dungeons Dragons, but you know, what I thought was relatively simple. And I had a design, and I went and networked to meet a literary agent who represented several best-selling romance writers. And he pointed out that there were two problems with what I was doing. One was that the group that that read romance novels, middle-aged women, were the least demographically likely to pay, play games. That's Remember, this is back in the 1980s. Now they are among the most likely to do, but then they didn't do it. So I was asking them to play a game. And the other thing is, romances were things that were showing a part of your private self. If you want to read a romance that was about, you know, a little had a little bit of bondage, you weren't going to go and expose that to other people. And if you were in other people, and if you want sentimental boy meets girls, get married in a church, et cetera, and so forth, and have a family, you were you were only going to expose that to people you trusted in environments. So to role play with other people. So I had done I had done a good game that that recreated the romance experience, but I had not understood my audience. Ever since then, I've always assumed that I am not the audience. That's why I was able to give you the comp. That's why I was able to say VR wasn't going to work in 2016, 2017, because the audience were only techno geeks who weren't looking at what the, who were willing to put up with the inconvenience. That probably is shaped. That's one of the things that shaped me, but that's probably a good example. So, by the way, I think I know how to do a romance game. But since I have too little time and too many projects I want to do, I don't want to revisit. There are other people who are doing fine romance games out there. And they can have that challenge. But learning that I had to understand who was going to be the player or who was going to be the user for non-game applications was one of the most important lessons that stood for me. And it's one of the things that really causes a problem for the games field, that people design games for themselves rather than who the, who their players are. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Everybody needs to sort of like grow out of that when they start making games. That was a good one. Uh, Eric, this is really fun going through all this stuff. Um, as the last question, what is the best way for people to, to get in contact with you? Um, well, you can, you can send me email. Uh, you can send me email at egoldberg at crossovermedia.com. So E, as in my first initial, Goldberg, you know, E Goldberg, so it's nine letters, at crossover, C-R-O-S-S-O-V-E-R, media.com, M-E-D-I-A.com, one word. That's a good way to do it. It usually would help, since I got a lot of email, to put in the subject line, here's what I'm interested in. And if you don't hear from me, ping me again in a week. I get a ton of email, and but I also very much like, one of the reasons I enjoy speaking and one of the reasons, for instance, I'm happy, well, I'm just happy to do this podcast because I get the benefit of also getting to know you. And thank you. Thank you for reaching out uh, through our mutual colleague to do that. 
but I always want to meet new people because I know I know almost everybody in the West who is developing games in years that began with one, but you know, in the 20th century. But those people are retiring. Those people are dying. I mean, it's it's very weird to think about this. When I joined the field, I was a teenager. Now I have people who are older than me who you know who are were before me who are in their 70s. And that just didn't exist before. I want to meet the new generation. I want to meet the next Richard Garfield. I want to meet the next Will Wright. I want to meet. Yeah, you know, I want to meet the next Brenda Romero. Yeah, yeah, they're they're gonna be in your inbox too. Hey, <laughs> well, if you, you get, Joachim, I've been delighted to be on this session, and I've enjoyed talking to you. If you could deliver the next Will or Brenda or people of that caliber, I will be delighted. I will thank you for. I, I will have many reasons to thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I'll, I'll try my best. Hey, thanks, Eric. This was so much fun. I uh, hope you have a good day. See ya. All right. Take bye. care. Take care. Bye. Thanks again, Eric, for coming on the show. If you like our content, please hit follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. And if you haven't subscribed to our newsletter yet, you can do that at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. On the weekly newsletter, I talk about gaming startups, what's going on in gaming, what are sort of like the big things that are happening? What are my own reflections about the games industry? So check that out and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.